This program is paid for by Jacob Media Partners. All opinions or statements expressed on this program are solely those of Jacob Media or its guests and do not reflect the views of WPHT or Odyssey. Today's program is pre-recorded. And guess where this additional billion gallons of biofuel is going to come from? It's going to come from abroad. That's not an American first energy policy. We're in this together. Labor's in this. Building trades are in this. Refiners are in this. American consumers need us to do this too. Now across the Jacob Media Network, welcome to the Labor and Energy Show special. Exclusively presented by the PBF Energy Paulsboro Refinery and the PBF Delaware City Refinery in collaboration with the labor unions that build our communities. If you fix this RINs issue, you're looking at a reduction of 25 to 30 cents a gallon. This is the Labor and Energy Show, bringing labor leaders, national experts, and political influencers together to educate you about fancy terms like RINs and Reggie, while explaining the truth about energy independence. Welcome to the Labor and Energy Show with J. Doc and Krause. And welcome in, everyone, to another edition of the Labor and Energy Show with J. Doc and Krause. So glad that you're uh, joining us today. J. Doc, one guest with us for the uh, full hour. We'll introduce our very special guest in just a moment. Uh, still having and fielding a great conversation from our last Labor and Energy Summit. We have another summit uh, on the calendar. We'll update our listening audience about that. And a reminder to the listening audience if you miss. Uh, uh, any of today's broadcast of the Labor and Energy Show. If you want to go back and listen to the Labor and Energy Summit, just go to Apple or Spotify and search the Labor and Energy Show. Absolutely, Joe. And, and uh, every week we get the opportunity to talk to the top leaders in labor, energy, and politics uh, about the importance of working together and maintaining a balance between our traditional energy resources and the transition to renewables. Obviously, uh, and continuing to meet our, our environmental standards, which are already the highest in the world as we navigate the slippery slope of energy in, in, in America and abroad. So, uh, obviously, the goal of our show is to educate educate the public on common sense and energy. And of course, uh, the big thing is to change the narrative. And Joe Krause, you say every week, uh, when you call your phone, it's, it, it says, uh, you, your answer in voice message says, if you find yourself the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room. Well, I'm in the right room. We got an incredibly um, bright and influential individual uh, as our guest today. And let me tell you something. I couldn't be more excited uh, to, uh, than to have this show coming about today. I'll let you introduce the guest in just a moment, and we'll get him into the conversation uh, right away. Um, I do want to point out, as our, um, you know, just to the listening audience, you know, we you're listening to a show that we recorded earlier in the week, uh, and our special guest today was kind enough to join us, uh, sitting in the state of Florida today uh, when we are recording. And I want to be sensitive to lose time and and also uh, make sure that we share the appreciation to. Lou for taking a moment, despite everything that's about to happen in Florida, for him to join us. So let's jump right into it. Thank you. Absol absolutely, John. We really appreciate uh, Lou Polaresi, uh, president of the Energy Policy Research Foundation, known as EPRINC, uh, a leading energy think tank based in D.C. Lou, welcome to the broadcast. It's great to be here, guys. Well, it's, it, it's great to have you. And, and, and the broadcast today, our, our, our theme, a discussion on the truth and the realities of the energy transition. Okay, and, and to our listeners who don't know what that may mean, uh, from our traditional uh, energy resources, gas, oil, and coal, to renewables. Uh, and so, uh, it, it's the number one topic in energy right now, it really, not just in energy, but across the world, across the globe. And, uh, you know, Lou, uh, we're ecstatic uh, to have you on the broadcast uh, one of the things, and I'd like to start right off, is give us a little bit of background on EPRINC. What is it, and what are your main areas of research and projects? Yeah, uh, thanks so much. So let me first start. The, the history of EPRINC is industry. interesting. It used to be called the Petroleum Industry Research Foundation, or PIRINC. It was started in New York in the 1944, 45 era, and the big topics then was whether the price of the whether the FTC was going to sue the industry, whether the 
on the price of heating oil between 14 cents and 14 and a half cents a gallon. And so, and, uh, as, and actually it was the refiners and the terminal operators who actually put up the initial money for this uh, public policy foundation. Uh, over time, of course, it's, uh, we migrated out of New York City. Uh, I wasn't even uh, in the well, 2008, uh, maybe four, earlier than that, to Washington, D.C. and had much more of a public policy focus. We're a not-for-profit not organization. When we are really in this space, this research space of petroleum, energy, economics, and public policy. We, trans we uh, routinely testified before the Congress. I personally have testified four times in the last hundred days, both in the House and the Senate. We'd like to provide technical and independent analysis and distribute to the public. And any of your listeners are interested in the chart of the week. We put out a very interesting chart every week. They can e email me at loup at eprinc.org. And we have done some work for the Department of Energy and also the Defense Department. And we, a couple of things, we, we have a very big project with our sister think tank in Japan called the Institute of Energy Economics Japan. And uh, we occasionally do a series of uh, seminars and discussions of people with different kinds of views at the embassies in Washington. And all our work is provided without charge on our website at Efren Dome. And, and so, you know, having said that, and, and, and again, for our listeners, Lou's testified before Congress on numerous occasions. Uh, Epring's research receives extensive press attention. And, of course, uh, the team is often called uh, to present at conferences all over the world. Uh, so having said that, recently in, in that uh, mode, you, you recently at, at an energy conference in Tokyo, uh, you gave a, a presentation titled uh, Understanding Cost Risk and Technology Constraints of the Energy Transition. Can you give us a little brief overview in, uh, of that uh, presentation and the conference? Absolutely. So <clears throat> there is this big effort and a very aspirational effort to move the world energy complex between uh, one heavily reliant fossil fuel to something else, <laughs> so-called renewables or uh, some kind of low-carbon solution. And, you know, the basic theme of our, and I'd say among the sort of the major industrial powers of the world, the Japanese were highly reliant on imports, are a little more reluctant to sign up what some people may call not aspirational, but delusional um, perspective on how easy this is. It's an extremely difficult task to transition the world from fossil fuels to renewables. In fact, it's not, we don't, it's not a moonshot. It's equivalent of taking everyone in the world and sending them to the moon permanently. People need to understand that we have a very inadequate understanding of the scale and scope of the challenge, that fossil fuels still will have a critical role to play. We have very unwarranted optimism on the pace of the technologies that we can deploy. And most of the world, where all the economic growth is going to take place outside the advanced economy, they are not buying and cannot afford what we're selling. And, and, and before you, let, let me jump in there for a second because Absolutely. what you know what you're saying is incredibly compelling. And 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 uh, one of the things that we hear constantly, and look, we're we of all the uh, labor and energy um, you know leaders that we've had on the on the on the uh, program. Uh, not one of them, not one has talked about the environment like they don't care about it. Everybody prioritizes, uh, you know, our carbon footprint, our, you know, emissions, you know, by, and, and to a level really that, you know, last week we did the National Natural Gas Industry Summit and uh, I, I think EQT is, is, is seeking to have a, uh, a, a, a carbon footprint of net zero by 25. Let me just say, the reason I say that is, because one of the things that we don't hear from uh, the extreme left when we're when we're talking about uh, these uh, these 
topics is we don't hear the details. I had no idea. The point of the program, you know, I, Joe Krause and I, regular people, okay, uh, environmental supporters, all those things. But we had zero idea, zero, that you needed that 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 fossil fuels, uh, you know, comprise six thousand products that we use every day. That uh, many of our renewables are you know, cannot be uh, produced without renewables. You don't hear those details. You hear terms like net zero, and you hear um, you know all this discussion about uh, uh, you know obviously electric vehicles and all that, and uh, you know everything getting shut down by. And, and, and transition by 2030, but no one is talking about the details. And when you talk about what you're saying right now, you know that goes hand in hand. It it it, it rings a huge bell. Right. Let me give you two simple examples. One, <clears throat> mining people may be unaware that you need uh, fertilizer to grow food, but mo most of this fertilizer is produced from petroleum, actually from natural gas ammonia. And we did a chart recently that in the absence of fossil fuels, natural gas, you can, instead of being able to produce enough food to feed uh, seven plus billion people on the planet, uh, natural fertilizers could only feed about three billion people on a mixed plant-based diet. Okay, so that is just a reality. Four pillars of modern civilization, the production of cement, steel, right. fertilizer, and plastic have no cost-effective substitute today. So, we, you know, it's, it's true that we can make a lot of progress yep. towards lowering our carbon emissions. But in the absence of some kind of magical thinking, uh, even if the entire OECD were to spend all our money, all the advanced countries would spend all our money on moving to renewable, in the year 2050, net emissions would likely only be net carbon emissions, 20% less than any kind of base case, because most of the growth is going to take place outside of us, right. outside of these advanced countries, and they can't afford to do this. Exactly. In the underdeveloped world, um, these individuals, they must think we're in the twilight zone. Uh, and, 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 and they must, you know, they, they, you know it's, it's, it's a uh, very confusing type situation, not to mention that the United States is 13% of the carbon footprint. And if we went, if we went dark today, um, the, the growth with India and China would, would, would likely not dent our atmosphere. So having said that, um, uh, you know, before we you know, get into the, the uh, meat and potatoes of our main uh, theme today, which is like we discussed, um, you know, your perspective uh, on the cost and, and technical considerations of the energy transition, let's give our listeners some background regarding where we stand on the production of domestic oil, natural gas, and, and petroleum products. <coughs> Yes, as you know, for if you go back to the Carter administration, where the U.S. was a massive importer, net importer of uh, petroleum and petroleum products, uh, due to technolo technological innovations, uh, the advancement of hydraulic fracturing, private mineral rights, largely in uh, you know Texas, Oklahoma, North Dakota. Uh, the U.S. has made a major back breakthrough in the production and expansion of domestic oil and gas production. And today, if you take all of North America, because that's the way, a good way to look at production of petroleum, Canada, the U.S., and Mexico together, and of course it's dominated by the U.S., the U.S. is a net exporter of about 2 million barrels a day. Now, of course, we import a lot of crude oil, but we export a lot of products. We export crude oil as well. We're a large continental landmass, so we want to have a lot of efficiency to sustain this. So, but we are not a net draw. North America is not a net draw on the world market. And so this 2 million barrels a day in net exports, we could, could sustain that were literally decades if we had the right policies in place. We're also, uh, if you talk to Toby Rice, I'm sure you know this, we're now exporting about <clears throat> 10 billion cubic feet a day. 
Those exports, well, they go into the world LNG market of natural gas. Some and a lot of natural gas is exported to Mexico by pipeline. But our uh, our exports of natural gas are probably equivalent to what the Europeans were importing from uh, from uh, Russia, right? And right. second, if you go from 2010, 2020, the United States alone provided over 80% of the incremental demand in global petroleum, right, liquid. That is why prices were kept low. And that is why you want to have a system, the production, distribution, and refining sectors to be as efficient and to operate at the, you know, the most effective manner as possible. And you don't want a set of policies that diminish the value of this North American production platform. Absolutely. So that's where we are today. The Labor and Energy Show with Jay Doc and Krause. We'll take a short break. We'll pause for just a short break and pick up our conversation on the other side. Back in a moment. Thanks for listening to tonight's Labor and Energy Special. Now it's time for Did You Know? A public service announcement from the providers of this program. Did you know carbon capture and storage can capture more than 90% of CO2 emissions? Did you know? First chartered in 1903, Steamfitters Local 420 has been constructing and installing mechanical systems throughout the Delaware Valley for over a century. United by excellence, this local is proud to have worked on projects such as the Sun Oil Refineries, Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and the stadiums for all our Philly teams. From helmets to hard hats, Local 420 represents the history of Philadelphia. Steamfitters Local 420, Jim Snell, business manager. PBF Energy wants you to know hidden RIN costs are adding almost 30 cents to every gallon at the pump and pushing independent American refineries to the brink. It doesn't have to be this way. President Biden can lower gas prices and protect thousands of union refinery jobs by fixing the renewable fuel standard. And he should. Visit fuelingusjobs.com slash take action to urge President Biden to stop the RIN sanity and fix the renewable fuel standard today. Portions of tonight's Labor and Energy Special are being supported by the members of the labor union community, including Steamfitters Local 420, Jim Snell, Business Manager, the Eastern Atlantic States Regional Council of Carpenters, and the United Steelworkers. And back here on the Labor and Energy Show with J. Doc and Krause. We thank everybody, as we always do, for uh, tuning in, J. Doc, and for keeping an open mind. We always say, as you mentioned in uh, the opening segment, and we've been saying it since the Labor and Energy Show started, we want to educate the public. We want to change the narrative. It all starts with the public being willing to and being receptive to listening to uh, those that know, um, which is why we bring guests on the show who are in the know. You referenced when you started your, uh, about being uh, the smartest person in the room. Um, I'm going to reference now about being the smartest person in the state. I'm not that, but we have a great guest today uh, that is really uh, providing some incredible well, insight for the listening audience. Exactly. Great, great job, great guest for our audience today. Absolutely. Uh, you know, we're, we're, we're ecstatic to have Lou Polarisi, uh, who's the president of the Energy Policy uh, Research Foundation, known as EPRINC. Uh, it's a leading energy think tank uh, based in uh, uh, D.C. And, and having said that, Joe, uh, one of the things Things that, you know, as we take this information in from Lou and a lot of our top experts, um, uh, this is and one of the things we say, Lou, uh, when we have this conversation, okay, um, this is, uh, energy is not a political party. It's not a union issue. It's a human issue. We don't come on, we don't, we didn't create this show uh, to, 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 to kind of, uh, you know, you know, take a, a political axe to things, okay? We're looking for the information so we can all work together. Uh, we've had labor leaders say uh, when... We when do need, J-Doc, our political leaders to step that, up, get that's, educated, that's and right. start to be counted. That's right. Sure. Of course. And, 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 that's, and, what, and the that's partisan, what I want to get out That's of right. And the partisanship is killing us. And it's, and it's uh, you know, the, the, the policy is taking... When, when, when you look at energy, uh, our energy independence, it, it goes hand in hand, uh, you know, with what 
what we're doing politically and what we're doing. We're, we're such a vast country when it comes to energy resources, and we're shutting ourselves down. Well, I wanted to jump in what Lou mentioned in terms of speaking in front of Congress. Lou, just a sidebar thought to that uh, to that process. When you have that opportunity to speak, do they do they hear or do they just listen? I, you know what it. It depends on the hearing, <laughs> uh, and, and the question that comes up a lot is: I think the Republicans are getting better at this. Uh, there was a hearing once, uh, very recently, I, I participated in, in which the issue of um, what do we do about critical materials and minerals? And this is a really interesting question because there is this view that oh. If we get off of renewable, I mean, if we get off of petroleum, we won't have an energy security problem. Well, where are you going to get the lithium? Where are you going to get the cobalt? Are we going to open mines in the U.S.? Yeah. You ever try to open a mine in the U.S.? It takes a long time. That's right. So yeah. there's, there's no free lunch. So a, a rational way to approach this problem would have been to say, well, this creates a lot of wealth for the country, oil and gas production. We're energy secure. Maybe we should have a conscious decision to think about you know, how, maybe, how much should we invest in adaptation instead of just mitigation. Absolutely. What do we do with the vast uncertainty over the consequences of climate change? It's, it's unclear to us at all that these models are all that accurate. Absolutely. Okay, the, the world could get a bit warmer. We could have some sea level rise. The Dutch have lived below sea level for 300 years. There are things you can do. So it's it's not enough to just have a mindless view that, okay, we're going to stop fossil fuel production, impoverish ourselves, and that somehow that's going to be okay. It was a very good hearing just last week, a House Finance Oversight Committee. And finally, and you know, I'm really upset about this ESG stuff because it's so unthinking the way yep. they talk about it. Of course. But... Uh, I think it was Rajid Kali, uh, one of the squad congresswomen, and she asked Jamie Dimon, would he commit now? Because the IEA said that if you want to get to zero, you should stop all investments in fossil fuel. And she asked Jamie Dimon, would you commit now to stop all investment in fossil fuels? And, you know, the banks haven't been the best on this issue. They haven't really educated their own uh, clients and the public. And Dimon said, no, that would be the road to hell for the United States. So finally, it's sinking in. You know, the war in, the war in Europe that uh, these fossil fuels are kind of important. They're kind of fundamental to our own security. So I, I think you know the things you guys are doing on the phone is starting to sink in a bit. Absolutely, and 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 having said that, uh, where are we on the transition from from? Uh, uh, our transition, uh, our, our traditional energy uh, resources to the technology and fuels of what we would say the future. Yeah. So if you go to the, if you look at the whole uh, world today, right, you need to understand that in the history of the world, there's no fuel we use less of than we did you know, hundreds of years ago. In other words, we use as much traditional biomass now as we did in 1800. We use more. We use more coal than we did in 1940 or 1960. I'm talking about the world now. That's true for oil and natural gas. In fact, <clears throat> if you take the world as a whole, fossil fuels still dominate 80 to 90 percent of world direct primary consumption. And this is because of its cost, its density, its convenience, and its reliability. We have made enormous uh, strides in renewables, solar, modern bioenergy, wind, nuclear, and hydropower. But the world, you know, if you, and this is a global issue, fine. So if you look at the world, 80 to 90% of direct primary energy consumption is still driven by fossil fuels. For the U.S., if you go through data through 19, say, say 2020, Wind and solar are still less than 5% of primary energy consumption, and we have spent billions of dollars subsidizing these sectors. So, uh, once again, I, as I point out, this is not an easy process. 
And, one of, and, and this is one of the things we try to emphasize to Congress, which is, look, we have to uh, really get a handle on the scale of this challenge. And uh, the public really has an inadequate understanding of the scale and scope. Uh, we have just unwarranted optimism on the pace of the transition. And we're likely to just cause a lot of economic hardship if we proceed with this without understanding the full consequences of what we're doing. Yeah, and, and you talk about that magnitude as, as, as we do proceed uh, with the, the energy transition. What, and, and we talk about, our, like Joe Krauss mentioned, our political leaders, and, and, and you're obviously, when you're we're talking in front of Congress, what kind of questions should the, uh, the policymakers and our leaders be asking? So they, they should be asking a lot more of what are the technical risks what does it cost? Basically, you get up on, on Capitol Hill or you get in these meetings, and it's about whether you care or not. But that is not a good way to make policy. This is real. You know, these are very difficult things to fix. What do we do about the fact that most of our fossil fuel energy sources are 100 times more energy dense than a lithium-ion battery? What do we do about the problem that that a lot of a lot of political a lot of our political leaders say? Look, we want to jump over natural gas and go straight to renewables. <laughs> we want to stop the natural gas. Right. But there's no. You know, this is not selling outside a few rich countries. And uh, you think the people? You know, you've got oh, somewhere between three hundred and five hundred uh, million people in the southern coast of Africa who have no access to any power at all. You think their first choice is going to go with some uh, intermittent source of power that's unreliable? I mean, there are a lot of problems in these countries, I get it. But what they want is dense fuel. They want reliable fuel. In fact, right now, you go worldwide, after the invasion of uh, Ukraine by the Russians, coal is now becoming one of the predominant fuels. In fact, the increment in coal use worldwide has wiped out all the benefits of uh, all the money the U.S. has spent in reducing CO2 emissions over the last 10 years. It's just, you know, know, it's not, we're not very thoughtful in how we're proceeding with this transition. And, and, you know, as we're talking about this, is there just a disconnect? Uh, and, and, and really, uh, like Joe Krause, are people, and, and, and you talk about our, our political leaders and policymakers, um, when I say where's the disconnect, um, and, and that's what I meant by, you know, talking about, you know, you hear this, a lot of these, you know, obviously shut ourselves completely down, okay? And, and, and uh, you talk about the devastation that the one individual talked about. Um, don't the politicians know it? Don't, haven't they been educated? Aren't they listening to you? You're not walking in there with a political agenda. We're talking about uh, factual information and uh, we all care about the environment, but we need to do this th- I- I- in the proper way. You know, Lou, you mentioned, uh, you know, the, 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 the countries that are poverty, that are energy in energy poverty, uh, and, and the fact that, you know, they're, they're worried about obviously turning a light on or getting heat or getting, uh, you know, uh, the natural resources that they need that they don't have. They're using, uh, you know, uh, animal dung for, for, for a fuel source. Having said that, yeah. and that's a terrible, so they're not going to start off, they're not going to entertain a, a elaborate, uh, you know, obviously renewables to start off, but they need the basics. Having said that, where do you, you know, that's one thing, but, but how about our energy rich countries? When, when uh, regular people are not able to uh, air condition their, 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 their homes during the summer, uh, uh, you know, that happened obviously in Texas, uh, when, when things completely shut down, people that are used to having it, in a sense, it worries me that we're going to have to get to that point, at least if, if, if some people had their way, before we smell the coffee and, and, and come up with solutions um, where we can work together on it. Right. So I, um, uh, you know, uh, I asked a Democrat, a friend of mine, a Democratic pollster, okay? 
And I said, look, I don't quite get this. You know, the Democratic constituents should be a lot of, like, blue-collar folks and, you know, stuff and, you know, sort of middle-class folks. And so how does this, you know, how does this expensive energy solutions and climate kind of initiatives work? And he says, he said, you don't understand it. The if you do the polling and you ask you know, your average working man and woman out there, climate's way down on their list. So I said, well, why is that such a big theme with the Democratic Party? He says, oh, it's the donors. Yeah, the donors absolutely. give all the money. Well, I, that's got to be a good well, 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 strategy for the Democrats. Exactly. And to your point, and I, I bring it up a lot, I'm going to bring it up now. We, You know, Joe Krause and I, doing the labor show in Philly, they shut down PES refinery. Uh, now, the, prob- the, the, the refinery was having some financial uh, situations, uh, issues. But the, the point uh, you know, that has to do with the RFS and the RENs, and, and we won't get to that this show, but uh, we know you know a lot about it. And, and of course, uh, on, on part two of the broadcast, uh, you know, the next broadcast, we'll get into it. But having said that, we were sitting there in the twilight zone because a lot of our labor unions are, you know, heavily fo- their workforce is heavily focused on, on the energy sector, working in refineries and a lot of the plants. And this PES refinery got shut, was getting shut down. Ultimately, it did. We had a number of the, uh, the union guys in, in, in the uh, studio with us. Couldn't figure out what the heck was going on. One unit down, one unit down, 32 operating. They shut it down. Okay, that, you know, and some say, well, they had financial issues. Well, okay, no, all right. so when they went to sell it, they sold it to a company unrelated to uh, energy, okay, and, uh, you know, obviously, you know, totally dismantled the whole uh, place, lost thousands of jobs, tons of uh, uh, money in our economy here, all those things, and we said to ourselves, and that was the danger while it was going on. But and eventually it happened. So we went. We said, okay. Well, clearly, and all the jobs and, and the surrounding businesses. Let's talk to our political uh, people here. We're labor in the city of Philadelphia. We have great friends, and common sense has to prevail, right? Nothing. Crickets. And and what we heard, what we heard was that the environmental left. And again, we're not hearing the details. Uh, you know, we're not sitting here saying we don't care about the environment. Uh, you know, our, our carbon footprint, we do care about it, but we're not hearing the details of them. But what we heard from our, from all of our friends and all, the, the, the environmental left, the extreme left, you know, those that are funding the campaigns and all that are speaking louder than we are. Okay. And, and, and a lot of our policymakers and, and political leaders are running for cover. And you talk about this, and this must make somebody like you in the twilight zone. Yeah, it's really hard. I mean, I recently testified on uh, our, our, the Renewable Fuel Standard on the Senate side. And uh, so the lady shows up with the green pantsuit from Growth Energy and stuff. And immediately they say, the tag, they started to tag me and say, well, you, you're not for ethanol. And I said, that's not true. Ethanol has been, enor- has been an enormously beneficial blend stock for producing gasoline. It's the mandate. But you know, you can't. It's hard to get the Congress to take. I said, look, it's not about ethanol. It's about the way you run this policy. You don't allow the refineries to adjust their feedstock to be as efficient as possible. And they don't even want to accept it. You take them through the data and say, look, your your program of mandating these volumes into the refining sector is being paid by the consumers. The drivers are paying more for gasoline. And on the House side, uh, Congressman Merkley from West Virginia was defeated, unfortunately, said, uh, well, tell me what we should do. What can we do today? And I said, I'll give you three things you can do. You should lift the restrictions on the shipment of uh, product by uh, tankers, you know, uh, waive the Jones Act. You're right. You should take the RFS down to 10%, which is the natural economic blending area. And you should get rid of this balkanization of the fuel. Just go with a single standard. I mean, if it's really a crisis, you should be able to reach out and do some simple things, right? Because what you're getting out of all these little these regulations are either uh, helping some small special interests or imposing a lot of costs with very little benefit. Yeah, I mean, using Jones Act ships and 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 it, it just it you know it it. 
it, the changes are obvious. What what cra what makes me uh, actually crazy is we actually had uh, Congressman Donald Norcross on the program talking about this at the the RINs and the RFS. There's national security issues here. Okay, we have uh, re uh, refineries uh, closing down. Uh, that had a lot to do with the PES refinery, no question. Um, and it, it amazes me how people will choose, uh, you know, you know, money over. Uh, over, over national security issues and, and energy independence. This is the Labor yeah. and Energy Show with Jadock and Krause. We'll take our final commercial break on this edition of the Labor and Energy Show. One reminder for you, our next Labor and Energy Summit will air on October 29th and 30th. So coming up about a month from this broadcast, uh, Kathleen Sagama and the Western Energy Alliance will be all part of our next Labor and Energy Summit. Back in a moment. Thanks for listening to tonight's Labor and Energy Special. Now it's time for Did You Know? A public service announcement from the providers of this program. Did you know wind power depends on hydrocarbons? That's because inside those turbines are gears and axles, a generator, all sorts of moving and turning parts. And moving parts need lubrication. And lubrication means oil. Did you know? What's a boilermaker? We're the skilled welders, riggers, and craftspeople who will help you grow your competitive edge. We step up when others step back, and we do the job right, on time, on budget, and safely. No drama, just results every time. We're the International Brotherhood of Boilermakers, and everything we do begins with our bond. Let's get to work together. Visit bestintrade.com. Operating engineers are the men and women that move mountains. And the Engineers Labor Employer Cooperative, ELEC, puts them to work. They create opportunities for the men, women, and union signatory contractors of Local 825, repaving our roads, keeping our homes bright and warm, and even building our favorite team stadium. We understand infrastructure. That's why ELEC and Local 825 are ready to get to work. Neuter Integrated Multicraft Contractors has been a force since 1896. That's right, 1896. And specializes in welding, piping, mechanical, structural, constructability reviews, project management, and rigging design services. For a free consultation, call Neuter at 314-421-7600. Neuter proudly serves petroleum refining, chemical processing, power generation, and alternative energy. Get in touch with Neuter at 314-421-7600. This program is paid for by Jacob Media Partners. Portions of tonight's Labor and Energy Special are presented by PBF Energy and supported by members of the labor union community, a collaborative to educate the public and change the narrative. And welcome back, everyone, again to this edition of the Labor and Energy Show uh, with J-Doc and Krause. You know, J-Doc, sometimes when um, we have a great guest on our show, um, I often find myself just listening intently sure. to what is being said. And I, and I say that because I want to use it as a segue to make sure that people know if you miss anything, if you want to re-listen to it, download the podcast on Apple or Spotify, search the Labor and Energy Show. Sometimes the information is hard and heavy or just not so obvious. And I know for me, sometimes when things aren't obvious, I have to go back. Yeah. I, I have to re-rack. I have to. So I want people to feel good about being able to do that so we can get what Lou is talking about today and bullet points that you're making. We can make sure um, that we hit the mark Absolutely, uh, with and the conversation. Listen, you know, this, this has, um, you know, global consequences. And, you know, our goal, obviously, in layman's terms, not only to change the narrative, but to educate the public on the information uh, before you create a, 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 an, an, an opinion uh, on something that could literally uh, cut your nose off to spite your face. We, we, we kind of skipped over this. I want to cover this. I want to cover this um, question real quick before we kind of get into to, to the different technologies that, that are being deployed for the energy transition. Um, 
the high prices that we're seeing for gasoline and natural gas. Is that something, um, you know, entirely tied to Russia, you know, the Russian invasion? No, absolutely not. I think there's a several, uh, it depends what you're talking. If you're talking about petroleum products like gasoline, diesel fuel, jet fuel, some of that is clearly, uh, uh, what I would say, a very foolish policy during the pandemic. If you think you can like shut the economy down, throw a switch and turn it back on, I think hopefully our political leaders have learned their lesson. It doesn't work like that. Right? You, you, know, you get the, all these disruptions in supply chain. You want to get tubulars up from New Orleans? Well, good luck. There's no one who's around to drive the truck. So uh, you have a set, and you, you, if, you cre- if you keep creating a set of policies which are disincentives to expanding oil and gas production, guess what? You're going to get higher prices. So, yeah, some, some of the run-up in prices is due to underinvestment from the pandemic. Some of it is tied to ESG, and some of it is tied to maybe uh, when the a lot of the smaller producers were expanding too quickly and they weren't getting returns for investors. But, in fact, it is broadly tied to a failure to understand that fossil fuels are going to be with us for years. And then, and it's also fair to understand that these critical materials, that the demand for these critical materials, uh, you're going to have to have, uh, over the next 20 years, uh, over 4,000% increase in lithium, 2,000% graphite, 2,000% increase in cobalt, nickel. These things are not going to come out of the air. They're going to take a massive investment. And I think so, so one of the things I like to say is we need to step back from this, and we need to go to our policymakers and say, okay, how do you want to address the political, economic, and geopolitical constraints to these net zero adoptions? What is really the role of U.S. oil and gas in our own energy security? Right. How do we deal with supply interruptions and cost increases of these critical materials? Uh, what are we going to do about resilience in the electric power sector? And you know, and natural gas. Natural gas is such a valuable fuel. We use it as refinery fuel. We can export natural gas to the world with LNG, yep. and we can have low prices in the U.S. If we'll build out the pipeline, I mean, we have the potential gas committee, that enormous studies. We are the Middle East of natural gas. So... I really think it's a failure to understand is climate an existential threat or a manageable problem. If it's a manageable problem, which almost every, that's what the IPCC said. It doesn't say we're going to go out of business. It just says we're going to have some problems, even if you buy the bonds. Well, we have, or should have a more rational, cost-effective approach to that. Absolutely. And so, as, as, as you know, when, when you talk about that and, and the technologies uh, that can be deployed for the energy transition, uh, the, the question is, are they working and affordable? And, and one of the things uh, I see you've spent a lot of uh, time looking at are the range of technologies. Uh, we're talking about uh, electric vehicles, hydrogen fuels, carbon capture. Uh, energy efficiency. Right, right. Uh, what are the prospects of these technologies over the next 25, 30 years? Most of these technologies, we take, take hydrogen production or electrolysis, right? The current, the way our grid is set up now is not even to, to deal with. To produce hydrogen now, you might be able to produce it at six bucks a kilogram. You've got to get it down to $2 a kilogram. Synthetic gas, uh, the biodiesel production. I mean, biodiesel, I think this is fascinating. The whole question of, okay, you want to use bioenergy? Let's say you want to use bioenergy just for electric generation. The land requirement for bioenergy today, and this is worldwide, is about the size of France. Right? That's how much land is going into producing plants or some kind of, you know, bi- biological-based fuels. Uh, and you're going to have to increase the amount of land to that just to get on this path that the International Energy Agency to the size of Mexico. Right? Hmm. Even if you don't take the transmission requirement, you're going to have, for solar alone, to eat this net zero, you're going to have to increase the land requirement from, uh, let's say, the 
size of California to the size of Texas. And that's how much more land you're going to need. Uh, you know, for, you're going to have to add that one more California for the solar and the size of Texas for the wind. But do you really think the world can do that? Do you really think the pe- people who live around the world are going to want all their land eaten up by this? It's going to be very hard and, and, to and deploy this. And you mentioned, you know, we talk about electric vehicles and, um, you know, mining for the critical minerals um, needed for the batteries. Okay, we're out, listen, we're all for electric vehicles. There's so many, uh, but but I'm not for mandating uh, all uh, electric vehicles in a state which has been going. You know, we, we we have it in California. It just came to Delaware. A ton of other states are mandating. Uh, electric vehicles, uh, you know, 100% by a specific date. Um, no one's talking about what it takes to to mine the critical minerals for the batteries. Having said, because what what you hear constantly is, well, uh, we'll have, you know we're uh, you know obviously we're a very uh, able-bodied country. We'll figure it out. But the fact of the matter is, right now especially from a labor standpoint, the Congo and China and slave labor, that's where they would be, that's where they would be mined. And uh, you, there's no details in, uh, you know, do we have enough critical minerals to, to be able to rep- uh, replace? It's absolutely not realistic to be able to replace every battery, every car right now to an electric vehicle with batteries, uh, with, you know, the, with the batteries that they need. Again, Lou, it's the details that, that are being left out of the process. Yeah, I, I think this is just a very unrealistic view of the scale-up problem and the scale-up cost. You can always you can already see this. The cost of a Tesla battery has just skyrocketed, and uh, there are lots of uh, supply chain issues. And there's a more fundamental question: well, average actual cost of a electric vehicle is, to, is probably turning two to three times higher. I mean, you can buy an internal combustion engine, a very efficient, low-emitting internal combustion engine for around $25,000. Right. You, what do you think an average EV goes for? It's 66000 66, And how, how long are we going to keep doing these subsidies? These subsidies, if everyone's going to buy an EV, I don't think we have enough money in the treasury to pay for that. Absolutely. By the way, just so you know, just so you know, Lou, that's Joe Krause type of money. I'm not in that league. Just so. <laughs> uh, but but you know, it, it, what what about carbon capture? There's a lot of talk about carbon capture. Um, a lot of people talk about the cost. Uh, we've done a lot of uh, uh, broadcasts on it. We only have three minutes left. So so. Uh, but if you would just touch so, on that. So we can do carbon capture. We can do you know we can capture. Uh, yeah, we might be able to capture five, ten percent of it. But do you know what you're talking about to sort of go to net zero with carbon capture? Mm-hmm. You're going to have to replicate the entire world petroleum industry because you're going to have to build all those pipelines. You're going to have to d- drill all those reservoirs to put the carbon into. So yes, you can make progress in carbon capture. You can do things with hydrogen, but it's going to take decades and decades. And even I, you know, I, I was with a Washington Gas, uh, just a big distribution company in the U.S., and they said, yes, we're interested in hydrogen. We maybe next decade try 1%. That works out. We may the next decade after that go up to 10%. So the transition is hard and it's rare. And everyone needs to understand that. Well, listen, Lou, um, you know, we're coming to, to, to the uh, completion of the fastest hour in radio, man. And, and uh, we really, really appreciate uh, not only your time, especially under the circumstances. You're, you're in Florida and it's about to get rough there, man. So we appreciate you, you sticking with us. And uh, we appreciate the information. Uh, we, we hope our listeners, uh, you, know, you know, listened and, and, and thought about it or thinking about it so we can make an education. Educated guests. Uh, I want to thank Lou Polrisi, uh, president of the Energy Policy Research Foundation, uh, aka uh, EPRINC, uh, uh, for being our guest on the Labor and Energy Show. Lou, we just uh, we just touched the tip of the iceberg. Uh, we look forward to having you uh, on the broadcast again, my friend. 
Okay, great. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for including me today. All right. Good stuff from Lou uh, joining in. He's sitting in Vero Beach right now, Jay Doc. You and I will take a short commercial break. We'll come back on the other side. We'll only have a minute to say goodbye uh, back in a moment. Thanks for listening to tonight's Labor and Energy Special. Now it's time for Did You Know? A public service announcement from the providers of this program. Did you know that natural gas with carbon capture and storage ensures a more stable and cost-effective energy supply than renewables alone? Did you know? PBF Energy wants you to know hidden RIN costs are adding almost 30 cents to every gallon at the pump and pushing independent American refineries to the brink. It doesn't have to be this way. President Biden can lower gas prices and protect thousands of union refinery jobs by fixing the renewable fuel standard. And he should. Visit fuelingusjobs.com slash take action to urge President Biden to stop the RIN sanity and fix the renewable fuel standard today. The Eastern Atlantic States Regional Council of Carpenters is proud to present skilled union workers, including the workers that build and maintain our energy infrastructure. The safest, best trained, and most productive carpenters in the country are on the job. Whether it's energy from nuclear, wind, coal, natural gas, or offshore wind, the EAS carpenters are ready to provide the construction need of an energy industry our families depend on. If you're interested in a job in construction, visit EASCarpenters.org or follow us on social at EAS Carpenters. Portions of tonight's Labor and Energy Special are being supported by the members of the labor union community, including Steamfitters Local 420, Jim Snell, Business Manager, the Eastern Atlantic States Regional Council of Carpenters, and the United Steelworkers. And back here again on the Labor and Energy Show with Jay Doc and Krause. Man, Jay Doc, I, uh, I must say, for the very first time, I actually believe the statement that you made. That was a fast hour here in radio. Yeah. Um, really consolidated good information with our very, very special guest. Uh, he was fantastic. Yeah, he's, uh, and he stuck with us, as you said. He's sitting in Vero Beach, Florida, when we're uh, in studio recording the show. And he stayed with us um, yeah. as he's hunkering down. So a special thanks to yeah, Luke, yeah, for sure. We want to thank Lou Porisi, obviously, uh, talking about all the pressure points, uh, talking about common sense and energy, talking about um, utilizing our, our traditional energy resources uh, in, in the process of the transition uh, uh, you know, to renewables and, and bringing some reality into the discussion, Joe, uh, and, 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 and the details. So uh, fantastic conversation, really what the show is all about. That's going to do it for this edition of the Labor and Energy Show with Jay Doc and Krause. Don't forget our next Labor and Energy Summit coming up at the end of October. And if you missed any of today's broadcast or if you want to go back in time and listen to just our last Labor and Energy Summit from just a week ago, go to Apple or Spotify, search the Labor and Energy Show, um, put in your pods, uh, go for a long walk. Uh, and continue uh, to get educated. On behalf of our special guest, on behalf of J-Doc, I'm Joe Krause. See you next time, everybody. Thanks for listening to tonight's Labor and Energy Special. You can help. Call your congressperson before the upcoming midterm elections and join the movement to push back on RINs. This program is paid for by Jacob Media Partners. All opinions or statements expressed on this program are solely those of Jacob Media or its guests and do not reflect the views of WPHT or Odyssey. Today's program is pre-recorded.